Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother, David Oyelowo. Uh, but before we get to David, I wanted to talk about this gas issue and how insane y'all are going because of the temporary shutdown caused by the Colonial Pipeline hacking. In case you missed it last Friday, the group Darkside took responsibility for hacking this massive gasoline pipeline, causing the pipeline to temporarily suspend operations. Colonial operates the largest petroleum pipeline in the United States, carrying 2.5 million barrels a day of gasoline, diesel, heating oil, and jet fuel on its 5,500-mile route from Texas to New Jersey, providing nearly half of the East Coast gas supply. And while the interruption has caused some mild inconveniences, the pipeline is expected to be fully operational right now. But what's been our response? It's to panic, to hoard gas. Y'all see people put gas in plastic bags and the result, an actual shortage created by panic buying and not because of the pipeline suspending its operations. Now, I blame this partly on social media and partly on stupidity as this panic set in when we read the headlines that there could be a gas shortage and not the full articles, which have told us that the shortage would be over already. I know we talk about this a lot, but the lack of media literacy at times or our ability to correctly interpret what the news is telling us and responding accordingly seems to be a major shortcoming with far too many of us. And now gas stations have become what toilet paper once was during the early stages of COVID. Y'all remember that. Or Popeye's when the chicken sandwiches first hit. That's actually more excusable than y'all hoarding gasoline. We all felt a little silly after both of these episodes, and we should feel silly now about the gas shortage that we created by panic buying. So buy what you need. There's no shortage other than the one that we create, and we'll have enough gas if you consume gas like an adult. And that's that on that. And now on to our show with my new friend. I'm absolutely astounded to have him on this show, David Oyelowo. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system. No matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. This is a great episode. And so, David, I just want to start, you know, we we start each one of our episodes by having our guest walk us through the arc of their career. And yours is one that spanned everything, the stage, television, movies. And now you're on both sides of the camera with your directorial debut in The Waterman. Talk about 
the moment when you decided that acting was your calling? And what was the inflection point for you when you decided that you wanted to give directing a try? And by the way, The Waterman is, is a dope pick. And you were like the second best actor in that movie because let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead. Answer the question. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it. I was born in the UK uh, to Nigerian parents. Uh, we then moved to Nigeria when I was six. I was there till 13. And traditionally speaking, in a Nigerian family, the arts, when I was growing up, that was just not where it was at. Academia was the thing that you aspired to. My dad, the reason I was born in the UK was because my dad left Nigeria to study uh, in Oxford. And, uh, you know, that, that was, that's literally the Nigerian way. And we came back to the UK when I was 13. I fell in love with my pastor's daughter, <laughs> to cut a long story short, she invited me to the theater on what I thought was a date. It wasn't. It was to join a, a youth theater group where they were low on boys. She didn't like me the way I liked her. She just she just wanted to look good in front of the director. So she invited a boy because they were low on boys. And I liked her so much, I kept going. And I, I discovered a love of theater. And it met up with my love of film and television and storytelling. But again, as I say, because of my cultural upbringing, my familial upbringing, that was never on my radar as a, as a, a profession. But I, I fell in love with it. I studied it. I ended up going to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art for it. And my career sort of started beyond my formal training at that conservatory. How did the theater, because you literally started in the theater. We've interviewed people who started, you know, had a, had a break in a small commercial when they were young and younger, kind of the child stars, et cetera. But you started on stage. How did that shape your orientation? And what does that, what impact does that have on your big screen talents that you have today? It's huge, really. And I think it's indicative of the different mindsets, the different traditions around acting, storytelling in the UK as opposed to America. Mm. Um, in, in the UK, it's quite normal to go to drama school. It's actually more unusual to do the route that you just talked about there, Bakari, of doing a commercial and then finding yourself going on to have a sustainable and sustained long career. You know, theater, certainly when I was leaving drama school over 20 years ago, that was, it was a theatrical training. You, you sort of earned your chops doing regional theater. And that's actually what, what and all you really aspired to. A television and movie career was sort of like, <laughs> oh, that's for, that's for those folks in Hollywood. Um, and that, that's very much how it started for me. Three years at drama school, three years at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And then I did a show called, it was called Spooks in the UK, MI5 Here. And that was the oh, beginning. Yes. Of the, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was one of the three leads in that. And that started a, a, a screen career for me. And then I did Last King of Scotland with Forrest Whitaker. I did um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Forrest, Forrest acted his ass off in the movie. That was a oh, great my. movie. God. And, and I'll tell you what, this is the thing about training. You have your formal training, but then you're on set with someone like Forrest Whitaker under those circumstances. And the training continues because yeah. I have to say, watching him up close and personal stay in character the entire shoot 
And then to see the results of it, it gave me a template for stuff I went on to do later on in my career when I had roles of that significance to play. So, you know, my, 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 yes, I had a formal training and, and then I've had training working with great people. But in answer to your question, I think the thing that a theatrical training gives you is fearlessness because it's terrifying to go up in front of an audience every day doing Shakespeare, doing Greek tra- tragedies, doing restoration comedies. And the, the truth is a, an audience will let you know every night whether they're convinced or not. And you take that knowledge, that muscle memory into the very artificial world of movie making, and, and hopefully you can still tell the truth under those circumstances. I asked Delroy Lindo this question, uh, who has a prolific stage career as well, but what is your favorite? Uh, do you prefer stage, film, or television, and why? They all feed each other, really. Uh, you know, But if I had to make a choice tied to being the best actor I could possibly be, I would pick theater because Hmm. no form when it comes to being an actor is more challenging, is more instructive, and I think is more muscle building in terms of what you need as an actor. He also mentioned something, and I wanted to get your opinion or thoughts on it, that the theater, you get that immediate gratification. And there is something about having that audience that's there with you at that moment, at that time, that gives you life, something that you don't necessarily get when you're on the big screen and you get that delayed sense of gratification. Well, you get that immediate gratification and you also get that immediate rejection. Well, that's is, true too. It's <laughs> the reality. And both are useful because, you know, unlike with making a film or a TV show where you may think you've made the best thing ever and then half a year, a year later, you go, oh no. And <laughs> you, you, you've had other instances where you've made mistakes because you didn't have that feedback right away. In the theater, every single night, you are being able to modulate and slightly tweak yeah. your performance because of that gratification, because of that rejection and the general reaction. And and that is is also why I think theater actors are some of the best actors around. Tell me this, how do you decide what roles you're going to take? I mean, I'm sure, and and even more importantly, has there been a role that you passed up that you look back and were like, man, I should have, that's a role that that I missed out on. I was able to do the last interview with Cicely Tyson before she I passed away. Yeah. She was doing her book tour. By the way, it's one of the best books I've literally ever read. So if you haven't, if you haven't read it, please put that near the top of your list. It goes into, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's freaky how, how good it is. And, you know, puts a lot of things in perspective, but even more importantly, like how do you decide when you, when you're looking at a script, I'm sure you have people who kind of say, no, he's, he's not going to play Lizard Man today. And you have people who like, who, who like screen stuff for you. But how do you, how do you make that decision? Well, actually, no, I, I don't have people who screen stuff for me. I, I, I insist on, um, well, no, I should take that back. They screen it on the basis of quality, but not necessarily on the presumption of the content that I'm going to want to be a part of. Makes sense. Um, But, you know, for me, a lot of it is tied to what I deem to be cultural, social, and historical responsibility tied to being a Black man. 
Like I cannot, will not do anything that I believe perpetuates negative stereotypes, caricatures, or presumptions about who we are as black people. I, I simply, I must be part of the solution and not part of the problem when it comes to that. But so, you know, you will not catch me playing the, the black best friend. You will not. I, I don't particularly gravitate towards slave narratives. Yeah, I, I'm about know, tired. I'm tired of those. I don't need another slave narrative. I'm, I'm good on those. I, I know that those are the thing of the day, but I'm, yeah. I, we don't need any more of those. We don't need any more of those because they've been overdone and they, there hasn't been enough of a balance in terms of yes. the totality, the complexity of who we are. And so, you know, being sensitive to that is something I, I hold dear. I see in other people's work is something I aspire to. Being sensitive to the cultural impact of what I do is, I think, a huge part of the responsibility. And so that's a guiding light for me in terms of, uh, of the roles roles I pick. How am I adding to the conversation as it pertains to the things I know we need to see culturally, especially when it comes to representation and race? You know, that brings me to something that I, I didn't necessarily have on my agenda, but we can just talk about briefly with everything going on in the world, the disproportionate effect of of COVID on economically and from a public health perspective on people of color, on us, mm. um, you know, living through this very hot summer that doesn't seem to be ending in mm. the U.S. where you have, you know, you started with George Floyd and just recently we buried Dante Wright and you continue to see these cases. Mm. How, how do you carry that and, and utilize that platform? You mentioned it briefly, but but do you think about that often as you go out here? Because some some actors don't feel as if that's their role. And do you embrace that? And, and how, do you, how do you carry that every day into your profession? To not embrace it, to not acknowledge it, to not use your platform to address it, I think is, um, look, that's other people's prerogative, but I just don't see that as a choice for me because so few of us get this platform. So few of us have the opportunity to have cultural impact and whether we care to admit it or not what we do with that platform is a part of the conversation for better or for worse mm -hmm. you know i deem what i do as an actor to be a constant opportunity to humanize us because prejudice i think is born out of ignorance Correct. and is born out of an erroneous notion of what someone who doesn't look like you what they are where they're from what they believe and so i'm trying to take every opportunity i have whether it's david the actor or the characters i play or the advocate i try to be to bring complexity and education, which can sound a little bit like spinach, but you can do that through entertainment. It is done every day through yeah. entertainment, but you just have to be intentional with it. And so, you know, I, I try to speak to that in my work in obvious ways and less obvious ways. Um, you know, one of the things that I am most proud of in The Waterman is seeing a Black family who it's not rooted in race, but it's rooted in love. Yes. It's rooted in adventure and it's rooted in universal themes that we can all 
relate to. And that in and of itself has its own kind of edifying effect on the culture if people who don't look like us can see themselves in us. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk about The Waterman briefly, and we will play the trailer from it because it's a really, really good movie. It's a dope movie. This town is weird. It's just different here than what we're used to. Yeah, real different. I know this move's been hard for you. It's been hard for your dad, too. He's just stressed about me. I always thought the Waterman was just something grown-ups sold kids to keep him from sneaking off into the woods. No one knows where to find him. No one except me. The note I saw in this book says that he's immortal. I need to know more about it. Got any money? Yes. But I'm still going to need money to buy supplies. Supplies for what? I'm going to find the Waterman. And one of the, one of the things that I liked about the Waterman the best is that as a Black father, you allowed your, your child to dream. Now, you had to get to it, mm-hmm. but you allowed him to dream and have dreams that were unconventional, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell folk what the Waterman is about and what was it about the screenplay that jumped out at you? Well, The Waterman is about the Boone family who have recently moved to this tiny town in Oregon. And Gunnar is the son of Mary and Amos Boone. Amos played by me, Mary played by the wonderful, wonderful Rosario Dawson. And uh, and uh, and the equally wonderful Lonnie Chavis, uh, who plays Gunnar. And Lonnie Chavis by far stole the whole movie. But go ahead. <laughs> I, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you, and I'm and I'm happy you felt that way. Um, I did my job, if that is. Okay. Um, but um, Gunnar's mother, as played by Rosario, is ill, and there is this myth in this new town they've moved to of the Waterman, who supposedly has the ability to cheat death, and so. Gunner teams up with Joe, uh, a local girl, to find the Waterman in the hope of being able to use the, the Waterman's abilities to save his mother. What do you want people to take from this? I mean, I, I don't I feel like I have to watch it a few more times. But what do you, what's the underlying theme? Because I just I watched it and I was just entranced by it. I mean, I, you know, you shed a tear in it. You get excited in it. You get a little scared in it at times. But what do you yeah. want people to take from it? 
Well, I think that the film, well, I know for me anyway, it is about sacrificial love. It's about how far are we prepared to go for the ones we love? And then to see that through the eyes of an 11 year old kid Mm -hmm. who's prepared to do anything to save his mother. And it's about how much he's prepared to do for his mother. And then how much this father is prepared to do to save his son. So it's this cycle of love within a family that has dysfunction, that has challenges, that has real issues it's dealing with, but that never overwhelms the fact that love is at the center of what makes this family both attractive and relatable. And Black fatherhood. That's what I was thinking about first, because yeah. Black fatherhood was so important because you would do anything for your wife. You do anything for your for your son. And that's that's what the epitome of fatherhood means to me. Yeah. And, and, and rarely seen, rarely, rarely. seen in, 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 a, in a functioning family where it's, you know, what often happens with us, you know, with uh, as, as as black people in films is we play saints or sinners. And there's very rarely do you have that nuance, that complexity in between. And similarly with this family, it's not that it's all lovey-dovey and everything is fine. And it's not that everything is dysfunctional and terrible. It's actually a family within which there is true love and there is true dysfunction. And they are trying to find their way through. Sounds like every family. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's why for me, this narrative seen through the lens of a of a black and brown family is a really beautiful thing because again going back to what i said about the humanization of us um as opposed to the otherization of us you know that's one of the opportunities i think you know the waterman certainly affords you went a little lebron james when he played for the cavaliers in this film you starred in it and you you coached it i mean you did you did it you did it all like you went lebron with the cavs how did you make the decision that you were going to star and direct the film did you ever just consider starring in it or directing it how does that decision come along or did you just say you know i'm going to do this I'm I'm just gonna die happy with the comparison <laughs> to LeBron James. I mean that, that, that you I I can die happy now. Um, it, it happened sort of in a circuitous way. Initially, I gravitated towards this film because it really reminded me of the films I loved growing up. E.T., The Goonies, Stand by Me. It had Gremlin. a lot of Goonies. It had a lot of Goonies in it. A lot of Goonies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A big inspiration in this film for me. I loved those films growing up. I didn't see myself represented in those films growing up. And so when The the Waterman appeared on the black list about five, six years ago, I went after it hard. And it was... What's, uh, the, what's, I, the, what's the black list? Now, you, you tricked me. What's that? So the, the black list is uh, it was started by a brother called Franklin Leonard. And it's uh, the best unproduced screenplays in any given year, it tends to be selected by top agents and agencies in Hollywood. And that top 100 list gets published and then studios all go after it, you know, trying to trying to uh, buy these unproduced screenplays. So it's a really brilliant way for um, hitherto unproduced writers to get a break. And it was Emma Nadell's first script, The Lady Who Wrote The Waterman. It, it got onto the blacklist and that's where I found it. 
and I competed with a studio to get it. Um, I then took it to Oprah Winfrey, who's a producer yeah. on this. And, um, and uh, yeah, we, we, we sort of nurtured, nurtured it uh, uh, in, into being um, as it were, but, but yeah, I can't even remember the initial question. But, I don't know uh, what it was but, either. Yeah, yeah, it, but, that's, it, but that's but that's how it came my way. <laughs> Let me ask you this question though. You said you mentioned you you got Harpo and Oprah involved. How difficult was it to get this project greenlit? Because I hear from people all the time. You know, we had Shaka on and others talking about the difficulty in getting Judas. I was couldn't remember the name of the movie um, right. produ- produced and greenlit. How difficult was it for yours to get greenlit? Well. And I will answer both questions back to back because I now remember the other question. How could I forget LeBron James? Um, you, you know, <laughs> oh, that's in, right. yes. it, it, initially, I wasn't going to be directing it. We got it off the blacklist. Um, we continued to develop it. We actually got a great director. He then left the project for what he deemed to be a bigger, bigger project, a project that hasn't got made, by the way. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, and the writer... Emma turned to me and said, look, David, you've been nursing this project. We've been developing it. We're trying to get it off the ground for four years. She said, I don't think there's anyone better positioned to direct this than you. And the reason why it was so crucial that that we we get it done is that at that point, we actually, we had cast Lonnie Chavis, because as people know, he's wonderfully in This Is Us. And we had him just for a window. We had got uh, the financing from a company called uh, Shiv Hans. And uh, so you have a start, you have a start date, you have the money. It took us four years to get there. You got to find a way to go. Um, And so I took two years to and two years, two weeks just to deliberate over it because, you know, it's no small thing to direct a movie. I knew it was something I wanted to do at some point. I'd spent my acting career really using it as my film school, working with these great directors, Spielberg, Ava DuVernay, Chris Nolan, Anthony Mengele, really amazing filmmakers I, I, I've been directed by and always sort of intentionally watching them as, as, as I was in those movies. And so, you know, it all just came together. It wasn't the original intent, but that's how I came to direct it. We lost our director. Mm, that's fortuitous. Yeah. Let me ask you. Let me ask you. How, oh, how can people watch the Waterman? When does just to give them give them the download, give them the plug of how can people watch it? Because I'm going to make sure that that everybody knows that this is one of the best movies that I've seen of the past two years at least. Oh wow! Thank you so much for saying that. That means so much. Um, yeah, it's going to be coming out in theaters May seventh. Um, so you know, all over America. <laughs> That's dope. Let me ask you a question. I you are uh, Nigerian and British. And there are now so many black British actors making their mark in the States. Why do you think we're seeing so many black Brits from you to Idris, who people say I resemble for some reason? Um, I can see it. I can see it. You can see it. If you squint a little bit, uh, Daniel Kaluuya scoring so many quality roles, often portraying historical black figures in U.S. films and television. Why do you think that is? I mean, you were the same way. Yeah, um, it's, I don't know, but, and I genuinely don't know, because in all of those instances, like, you know, with, with Daniel, even in, in Get Out, you know, I know, I know of African-American actors who turned down that role before it so went that's, that's actually my next question. So we can just wrap them into one. How, how do you deal with the criticism that you get from some quarters of Black Hollywood 
that takes issue with this emergence of the black British actors in American film and television. Well, yeah, and you're right. They, they, They are wrapped up in the two things because, you know, with Selma, for me, you know, I put that film on my back. I mean, you like, I first read well, that. I, I appreciate the humility there. <laughs> oh, well, but, 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 but my point being that Dr. King had died for 50 years. There had been myriad of opportunities for people to make the film. And I, I, I first read it in 2007, felt a calling to, to, to be part of that film, was actually rejected by the original director. And in the meantime, made a film with Ava DuVernay called Middle of Nowhere, tiny $200,000 movie. And then five years after being rejected by the original director, but then having been cast, going up against every African-American actor and every actor possibly who remotely was right for the role in the world to score the role with Lee Daniels, Lee still can't get the film made because we were still living in a world of black doesn't travel, black people don't want to see black pain, white people don't want to see white guilt. And then it was I who fought really hard for Ava DuVernay to direct the film. Um, So when I talk about putting it on my back, my point is that, you know, it wasn't something that was afforded me easily. Oh, there's this British actor. Let's just walk him through. It was a seven year journey fighting so hard, going to Oprah Winfrey, when even myself and Ava was on board, Ava rewrote the script. We still couldn't get the money to do it. I had done the butler with Oprah, like, please come and help us. Maybe if your name is on it, they'll let us make it, which is literally what broke the deadlock. So it was hard fought, is my point. Yeah, no, um, I know. You, you know, and, and when you think of Cynthia Erivo uh, as Harriet Tubman, you know, I know Casey Lemons well. I know that she she is not someone who's just going to give it to a British actor because that's the cool thing to do. If it's not a good performance, you better, you better. All, all of these roles you know. have been played just brilliantly. I mean, beyond brilliantly. I, you, you became a household name after Selma. What went into, I mean, King is a nuanced, fascinating figure and you have to get the oratory right and the pitch and the, what makes him even better is the cadence. And we, how did you get all of that down? Well, as frustrating as those seven years were of trying to get the film made, time is pretty good for for getting some of those things you talked about uh, going. You know, I just kept on studying and I was very aware of the size of the task. I was surrounded by amazing people, a great dialect coach in the form of Liz Himmelstein, a transcendent director in the form of Ava DuVernay. You know, and you just go to work. Um, and, and that's the point, you know, to, to your other question, Bakari, is that I get it. I get why people are upset when there is a perception that there are a lot of these uh, Black British actors doing well. But at the end of the day, great acting is not about playing yourself or your culture or your own personal experience. How do I take myself and place myself in the skin of someone completely other and tell their truth. You know, Forrest Whitaker is not Ugandan. (laughs) And and I watched him give a transcendent Ugandan performance. Should should Forrest not play that role? Amen, amen. 
he's the right person for that role. Should Meryl Streep not play Margaret Thatcher? He was the right person for that role. You know, should Denzel not play Steve Biko? I mean, it, it just, it's about the ability to tell the truth removed from your own person. And that's what great acting is. And there is, there is a wrongful confluence of the pain attached to the lack we have as opportunities as Black people and Black performers that then gets transposed onto this notion of the opportunities wrongfully going in a certain direction. It's more about there not being enough pieces of the pie. That's what we've got to focus on increasing. That was brilliant. I just want to say thank you for spending some time with me today. You are just one of the absolute best actors in the game right now. And you mean so much to the culture, the way you push it forward and you carry that responsibility on your back. Special shout out to you joining us from a cottage in the middle of England. <laughs> in so. the middle of Somerset, England. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much and have a blessed day, my brother. You too. What a pleasure. Thank you. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to talk about my alma mater, the University of South Carolina and the embarrassment that is our current president. Ah, I just got a tweet while I'm recording this, actually. Our former president, Robert Cowson. In case you missed it, he called the recent graduates from the University of South Carolina, the University of California. Listen to this, y'all. Y'all got to listen to this. Now my honor and privilege to officially congratulate you, congratulate you as the newest alumni from the University of California. Congratulations and please be seated. Oh, Carolina, sorry about that. I owe you five. And I don't know what was going on, but what I do know is that it was awful. And to add a little insult to injury, we found out a few hours later that a part of his graduation speech was actually plagiarized. He tried to resign the first time, but the chair of our board of trustees rejected his resignation. Now, as many of you all know, I never wanted Calson in the first place. Didn't feel as if he was the most qualified. He wasn't even one of the final three individuals recommended to the board. They jumped over him because of cronyism and chose him. And like so many alums, students, faculty, and donors, we protested Calson from the beginning because it was clear to us then that he was not only not qualified, but he was being considered for the role simply because of cronyism. And the biggest Trump crony that we had was our governor, Henry McMaster, who did his boy a solid and put him in a job that he wasn't qualified to do. And what does he do at graduation and beyond? He embarrasses us. And if you're a student who plagiarizes at the University of South Carolina, you could be expelled. But if you're a mediocre college president with friends with the governor, you never know what could happen. But I do want to say thank you to Robert Cowson for one reason. Because he decided to resign. He left his post. We now have Harris Pastides. The last two years have been unacceptable. And we can now turn the page. So, shout out for handling this mess that you created like a pro. And now we can move on. South Carolina needs a true independent regent system regulating our higher education system because the governor shouldn't have this much influence on who becomes the president of our flagship university or any university for that matter. But in South Carolina, that's definitely how it goes. And it's gone on for too long. We need an independent regent making decisions like who the next president of any public university should be. Because it's clear that we can't manage our own affairs and pick qualified presidents anymore. We used to before Henry McMaster got there, but now political connections seem to trump qualifications and basic competence. 
This is one of the many consequences when you let Trumpism infect how your government operates, where people have no business running anything, and they embarrass you and run your institutions into the ground. We've got to do better. And an independent regents is how we get there. That's how we get there, South Carolina. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys all on Monday. I hope you have a very blessed, fortunate, and great weekend. I will see you this weekend, Southern University and Clark Atlanta University, where I'm giving graduation speeches. Cannot wait to get there. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.